Phil Roberts, Robertson, did you hear his final statement? He said, if you're not a believer and you don't believe God exists at all, about the only hope you have is he is not there. That's your hope. Maybe he's not there. What we're saying, we trust that he is. And that stopped rather sudden. After he said that, he just gave a thumbs up and then got real quiet. Jesus, when he was on this earth, the most loving person who ever lived. You might think your kids are the most loving people. Or you might think your wife is the most loving person. Or you might think your husband is the most loving person. Or your mother or your father. But Jesus, the most loving person who ever lived, when he was on this earth, he talked about God existing. If you do not know Jesus as that kind of a person, I would challenge you to open up your Bible and read one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If I could give you a preference, I'd say read the Gospel of John. Meet the character of this person who is called Jesus. Today we're told there are many religions and no one can be correct. And yet you can study the biography of the major world religion founders. And Christ is our founder. And not one of them comes even close to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm telling you that. Hey, I'm supposed to say that. I'm a Christian pastor. I believe in Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. But I'm going to tell you what I tell high school students for seven years or six years here in Mount Vernon when I got to talk with them. Juniors and seniors. You're not fourth graders. You're not ten years old. You're adults, basically. I told them your parents may not consider you an adult, but soon society is going to say you're an adult. And basically in my mind, you hit 16, 17, you're supposed to start acting like an adult. Quit acting like a kid. But I say to them, I say, the difference to me between an adult and a child is that an adult seeks to find the truth. For the rest of your life, you've got to decide what the truth is. And I'm challenging you. Jesus Christ, the most loving person who ever lived. You don't want to take my word for it. Some of you don't even know me. But you can find out yourself. Open a Bible. Read the Gospel of John. Well, today we're going to hear Jesus talk about it. It's important about thinking about our relationship with God who exists. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like you to open it to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. If you, do, if you have those New Testaments, it's page 63. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to come back, be with us, bring your Bible, because I... I ask people to underline and to circle certain things in their Bible. Because then if they read it two years from now, if they'll look at that underlined part or the circled part, they'll maybe get a better understanding of the passage again. Okay? Because most of us, if we read the Bible, we read it to get finished with it. Oh, I read the Bible through. 
And we start a book and we hurry to get through a chapter and maybe three chapters. And pretty soon we've read the Bible through. We've read a book through. But did we understand what was going on? And we're looking to get to the end of the book instead of the journey through the book. And so I want to challenge you to use your Bibles and take that journey on a regular basis. My hope, you do it daily. If you do not have a Bible, when you leave, there's a table out here. There's some New Testaments on there. Take one of those. That's what they're for. And then bring it back next week and use it while we're together. That's what I said is page 63 to help people find the location quickly. If you do not have God's Word, it'll be on the screen and you'll be able to follow it in just a little bit there. I use the New Living Translation. It's not, I don't think, the best study Bible. Okay? I think if you're looking for a Bible that's probably more accurate to the original Hebrew and Greek, the English Standard Version Bible. But I use the New Living Translation because it's simpler for people who aren't used to a Bible to follow as I read it. And that's why I use it. Okay? And so that's what you'll hear. If you've got a different version of the Bible, it'll read a little bit different than what I'm reading. Before we go on, I would like to just say thank you again. I don't think I can say thank you too much to the people who are making possible for us to have this new site. The people who had vision for 10 years and now has transferred that vision to us, that's the Clearview Baptist people. To the people who have committed their money to help pay for that property, you're a part of, of accepting God's gift. And to those people who show up and work, it's just amazing. Yesterday, when people were leaving, I just put my head down. She had a few tears. Thank God. Just thank God for the people who give themselves. I mean, we had ladies working so hard. We had men. We had young people, teenagers. And they're just running back and forth and using their energy for us. And I'm so appreciative for the people who have taken that part to help. And we still have a long way to go. And so we need people and we encourage you to come. You don't have to be there every time. Don't wear yourself out. But you can be there sometime. And we will continue that giving. And one day we're going to be out there. And you know what? You're going to be able to park and you won't have to walk as far. It'll be a little bit closer than it is now. And it'll be more comfortable than it is now. And we'll raise that roof with praise unto God. And we'll concentrate on His Word as we're going to this morning. Before we get into the Bible, before we get into God's holy word, and we believe it's truth, we believe it will change your life. You can watch Oprah. You can read all the how-to improvement books. I'm telling you, it's this book that can change your life. It's this book that improves us. It's just getting to understand it, spending some time, and letting God begin to open up His truths. For us, His creation. Before we get into this, how about you bowing with me as I pray? Father, I thank You. I'm humbled to just be here this morning. That You give me the responsibility to speak to these people. I'm overwhelmed with that responsibility. And Father, I just trust that Your Holy Spirit will speak through words that I say and your Holy Spirit will use these words from your Son 
to challenge us about living life. And God, I ask that each one of us, whatever might seek to distract us, that, Father, you would help us to not allow the distraction to be there, to do everything we can to move away from that distraction, to trust you so we can get away from that distraction and we can hear your word, that your spirit could speak very plainly to us. And, God, if it needs to be a calm word, then have him to give us a calm feeling if it needs to be a kick in the bottom then god have the holy spirit just kick us in the bottom but god let us hear you we've already we've already felt your presence we've already seen words on the screen that are your words help us to understand your words in your book Father, we pray these things because of who Jesus is. Because as Phil Robertson said, through Jesus you have energized flesh and brought it back to life. Father, we speak these words because we seek that. We seek that relationship with you. An energized transformation of new life here on this earth and one day forever with you in our eternal home. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles, look there. We're going to be right there at the 12th chapter, 49th verse. We stopped at verse 48. We're going to finish verse 12. Uh, if you've been with me, 12 is a very confrontational chapter. Jesus has said some very important things I want to say again because I hope you'll look back and, and listen to the, the message on the Internet, on our website, I think it's so important. One of the first things he said in this chapter is don't be controlled by bullies. And we are controlled by bullies. Okay? And what we do, we carry, we carry behavior patterns because of the bullies in our life. You've got to hear Jesus. He's talking about religious bullies. In that message I talked about, there's more than just people who bully us in their religion. Okay? And then he moved on. And he talked about other things that weren't to control us. And he's going to close out this 12th chapter. And he's going to challenge us about our relationship of understanding God is real. Some of us just want to ignore that. He's going to talk very plainly about people who want to ignore the reality of God's existence. And yet see the reality of the world. And then we're going to jump into chapter 13. We're going to close out in the first five verses of chapter 13. Now, what I want to tell you, you who have taken or t have begun this journey with me, last Easter, the Sunday after Easter, we began this journey. And you who have taken that journey, we are one halfway through the book. The book has 24 chapters. Basically, we're going to move from chapter 12 to chapter 13. So somebody wants to know how long have we got to go? Well, just you do the math. Okay? Okay. But I hope, and I have, I have not only said I hope, you have convinced me that this is touching your life by the things we're saying. And I hope you're getting insight into scriptures that may be questioned before. Okay? So let's look there. Let's get started. 49th verse. Jesus is talking. Okay? He says, I have come to set the world on fire and, and I would recommend you underline the next six words because it's important to understand those if you're going to understand this passage, the context right here. Okay? He says, I wish it were already burning. See, he says, I have come to set the world on fire, 
and, next six words, I wish it were already burning. If you have your worship handout, your message map as I call it, there's a page in there for filling in blanks. Okay? It's a sermon page. And if you turn there, I want you to look at that first blank, and I want you to fill in that first blank. Okay? Jesus is talking about a fire of passion commitment for God's kingdom in these verses. See, you read this and you say, what's he mean he wants to set the world on fire and he already wishes it was a flame? And I'm going to tell you, you read the wrong people, you read the wrong person, and they're, they're talking about end times and they're talking about fire. We've got to read it in context. Jesus is talking about a fire of passion in the lives of these people. He says, I have come to put a fire in your belly. He says, I have come to put a fire in your gut. Jesus is saying, I have come to set you on, turn you on fire. Okay? Now, we, to us, we say, oh, come on, because we talk about sports. Are you on fire for the game? Are you on fire for this? We're on fire for many things. Jesus has come to set us on fire for God's kingdom. For you who have followed me, in verse 31, he said, put God's kingdom before above everything else, and He'll give you what you need. Jesus is talking in this passage about God's kingdom. He says, I have come to set you on fire about God's kingdom. Listen, you can listen to your music, you can watch your TV shows, you can go to your places you go to, and you can have fun in what you do. God created this world for us to enjoy it. But you are to be on fire for the God's kingdom. You are to be on fire for Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I wished whenever I came, I'd already found it on fire. Isn't that strange? I mean, God started working through Abram. He called the Jewish people. He, he delivered them through Moses' experience, their experience of Egypt. He had brought them great men and great women of God. He had done miraculous things in their lives. They ought to be so on fire for God. You're a loser if you're not on God's side. And you know what? They're bullies. They're religious bullies making a lot of rules. They're not liberating people. They're entrapping people. And that's what religion will do. Religion always does that. Jesus says, I ought to have come to this world and I ought to have found it on fire for God. You know what? It's not. It's not on fire. And so Jesus came to get us full of passion, to get us full of devotion that God exists. Look, he goes on. Look what he says in verse 50. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me, and I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. He's talking about he's going to Jerusalem. He's talking about he's going to die. You who have been with me after the ninth chapter, he's up here in the northern part of, of the land we know as Israel. That's called Galilee. It's, it's where the, the, the people from the metropolitan area always thought those hicks were up in Galilee. You know, the rednecks, okay? Jesus works with the rednecks in Galilee. They're of no value. Matter of fact, when, when the followers of Jesus, when He first started calling them to Himself, one of them went and said, hey, we found Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Messiah. And the guy said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Because it's up there in Galilee. Well, Jesus has ended that ministry around the Sea of Galilee. And he's heading toward Jerusalem. And what's he do? Most Jews would leave the, the uh, Galilean area and they'd cross over the Jordan River and they'd come down the, the uh, eastern side of it and then they'd, when they get near the bottom, they'd cross over to Jericho and come on into Jerusalem. They wouldn't walk through this part because these are the rejects. These are the people that 
Jews are prejudiced about. And what's he do? He goes right through that part of town or country. Be careful that you ever, you ever are so prejudiced that you start labeling people in Mount Vernon because of where they live. Jesus goes right through there. Matter of fact, he says, I've got to go through there. It was called Samaria. We spent some time on that. And now he's heading. He's going to take him some months to get to Jerusalem. And he's saying, I've got to go there, man. This is not going to be a good thing. You know why it's not going to be good? Because the Creator, Jesus created. John tells you in the very beginning, not anything was created that Jesus wasn't a part of creating. He is the Creator. He's the second person of the Godhead. Some of you are saying, boy, I don't understand that. The Father is the first person of the Godhead. Jesus second person of the Godhead. Holy Spirit is the third person of Godhead. Let me tell you, you're going to learn theology here. Okay? At connection. If you hang around. Don't have time to explain all that. But He's the Creator. And so Jesus, the Creator, comes to the creation, you and I. The Bible says we're the image bearers of God. You'll hear about that more as we go through Luke. I've talked about that somewhat. Come to our connect groups because we talk about that sometimes. Okay? And so... The Creator comes to the creation, the image bearers. And what are they going to do? They're going to laugh at Him. They're going to ridicule Him. And then creation is going to take the Creator. The creation is going to take God and they're going to beat Him. And they're going to put nails in His body. And they're going to kill Him on the earthly idea of death. Jesus said, man, that's not a good baptism to go through. That's not a good baptism to go through. Okay? And that's what's going to happen. And why is he doing this? Why? Why? You see, there's people who are called agnostics. Atheists don't believe God exists. Agnostics say God existed, but he has just sort of left us on our own. Why? Why is Jesus? Why does God come in the person of a human and go through this? Because you know why? He told them he wants to put a what in them. Thank you. A fire. He said, man, I'm coming down here. I'm going to go through this because I'm going to put a fire in some of you folks. That's what I'm going to do. Some of you got fire about the NCAA tournament. Some of you got fire about that vehicle. Man, don't ever touch my truck that way. Some of you got fire about your kids. Some of you got fire about what you eat. Jesus stepped out of heaven. God stepped out of heaven in the second person of the Godhead. For one purpose, to put a fire in us about God's kingdom. Sometimes you feel it, it gets you excited. Then all of a sudden, that fire starts getting a little water thrown on it. That's why you're here for. I like the way the Message Bible puts these verses. Look on the screen. Message Bible is just another translation. It says, I've come to start a fire on this earth. How I wish it were blazing right now. I've come to change everything. I'm going to tell you, you get the fire in your gut, you get the fire in your belly, you get the fire of God in you, it will change everything. Turn everything the right side up. How I long for it to be finished. I've often said, you've heard me say it constantly in the five years, almost six years we've been together. I've said, if God can get hold of one person in a family who will live and love like Jesus, He'll change that family. Somebody came up to me this morning and said, you know, you make this statement that if God can get hold of one person in a family, change a family. I said, yeah, why? He said, because it's happening in my family. 
See, don't try to figure it out. Just you live and love like Jesus. Don't try to figure out, well, my husband changed, my wife changed, my kids changed, my parents changed. That's not important. Let God put a fire in you, not that you're embarrassing people, but that you are simply seeking to live and love like Jesus. That's why you've got to learn about Him. That's why we're investigating Him. And He will change things. He will turn everything right side up. Jesus says, I long for it to be finished. Well, let's go back to verse 51. Look what He says there in Luke 12, 51. Do you think I have come to bring peace? Uh-oh. Look what He says. Do you think I have come to bring peace on earth or to the earth? No. I have come to divide people against each other. Now let me stop. When, the, when Jesus was born, if he's here with us, Luke, the angel's singing, and peace on earth, because you know, the Messiah's being born. But Jesus is talking to these people in context. We've got to understand. I've come to put a fire in you. I've come to turn you on for Jesus. I've come to get you excited about God's kingdom. But he says, I want you to understand. Do you think I've come to bring peace to the earth? No. I have come to divide people against each other. You know, what? What, Mike? Are you saying Jesus came to cause conflict on earth? You've got to understand it in its context of what he's saying. Look on your message map. Look at the next blank. Maybe that'll help you. And I hope you'll take this passage and that message map in one or two days this week. Just spend a little time with God. Read through the Scriptures. Look at the thoughts on the message map. And let God cement this in your mind. When you have a fire, it says there, of passion, commitment for God's kingdom, then others without that passion, not saying they don't have passion, but others without that passion will criticize and make fun of you. Do you hear me? That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. I've come and there's going to be conflict. You get this passion for God's kingdom. Somebody doesn't have this passion. There's going to be some conflict. Look what he goes on and says in verse 52. Look how he finishes that. He says, from now on, families will be split apart because Jesus has become involved. Families will be split apart. Three in favor of me, two against. Or maybe it's the other way. Two in favor and three against. Verse 53, father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. In other words, he's saying, I want you to realize something. If you get a fire for Jesus Christ, there's going to be people who don't have that fire and that passion, and they're going to criticize you. Your closest relationships will be strained if you seek to let the fire that God wants to put in you come forth. Your closest relationships. He's not saying you go to work and you make your supervisor mad because instead of doing your job, all you do is talk about Jesus. He's not saying that. I've had people say, I lost my job because all I did is talk about Jesus. I said, you should have put some duct tape on your mouth at work. You see, you're hired to do a job. And the greatest testimony, I want us all to be great employees because the greatest testimony, you've heard me say this before, I want people in this area to say, I know what church you go to. You're one of those connection people, aren't you? Because connection people come to work and they do their job. Connection people, they try to bless people. Connection people try to help people. They're not always just trying to do the short work and let everybody else do it. Jesus isn't talking about you going to work and getting fired because you're talking about Jesus when you're supposed to be doing your job. Jesus is saying in your closest relationships, when you live in such a way because you've got a fire for God that you're trying to be relevant to the world around you, you're not being bullied by people who are bullied by religious rules, but you're letting loose and letting God 
those people are going to criticize you. They're going to say things like, what? You go to a church that dresses like that on Easter? That's got to be a crazy bunch of people. You catching what I'm trying to say? I wish, whenever I was preparing this, I went through the internet and found Christians who are persecuted in other countries by family members. I mean, they're being killed and things like that, but I'm just going to tell you a personal story. I got a friend who's a Jewish believer. He received Christ in the latter two decades of 1900s, latter three decades of, of the 20th century, the 1900s, 1970, 1980. He's a Jew. He's a Jewish person by birth. When he received Christ, he calls himself a converted Jew, a Messianic Jew. When he received Christ, his father told him he made a mistake, but he stayed committed to Christ, and his father pronounced a Jewish funeral rites on him. Even though he's still alive, even though it's the 21st century, his father says, you're dead. That's what Jesus says is going to happen. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if your husband can't understand you coming to Christ. Don't be surprised if your wife can't understand you coming to Christ. Don't be surprised if your parents can't understand you coming to Christ. But let me tell you something. If you read the entire book of the Bible, the Bible says if your husband can't understand you coming to Christ, you live like Jesus and you love like Jesus toward your husband. Don't make Christ a competitive suitor for your affections. And some people do that. I've heard some ladies say to their husband, I'm sorry, I'm going to be with the church. And their husband knows there's a competition going on. Or some kid toward parents. Or some husband toward wife. Christ would tell you to love that husband. And he's going to say, why do you do this toward me? Why are you so kind and loving toward me? Because Jesus is Lord. He's going to say, go to church and get more of that stuff. Do you catch what I'm saying? But understand... Until people feel our love, they're, they're going to have conflict because you've got the fire for God's kingdom in you and they don't. And they're going to want to pour a bucket of cold water on you. They want to put out that fire. Well, you know, it'll settle down and you won't be as excited. And you get away from God's people and that's what happens. Because you see, God uses His people and His Word to keep us excited. And some of us feel that when we're around, but all of a sudden, now listen, our passion for something else tells us we don't need to make God's people and God's Word a priority. And all of a sudden, that fire is going away. Look, look on the screen. John 14, 6. Many of you know this. Jesus told him, the man he's talked to, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus told sinners that they need to stop sinning. Jesus told sinners they need to change. Jesus said, I am the way that you are to change. There's no other way. Somebody wants to argue about, is Jesus the only way? Argue with Jesus. Don't argue with Mike Davis. Don't argue with connection. Argue with Jesus. Now, if you're going to argue with Jesus, don't be like an immature adolescent. Find out if Jesus is a person you ought to argue with. Find out who He is, what He is like. Read the Gospel of John. Most loving human being who ever lived. If He showed any kind of of confrontation toward people, it was those who were bullies. It's those who tried to manipulate human beings instead of mobilizing human beings. And the church can do that. A pastor can do that. A husband can do that. A wife can do that. Parents can do that. Kids can do it. Trying to manipulate your mom and dad. Instead of mobilizing them as the kind of good parents they really are. 
You see, and so Jesus came, and he's not trying to discourage his his passion in his followers. He's telling them in Luke, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. If you want a relationship with God and his kingdom, it is through me. And when you make that kind and you get that kind of passion in your gut for Jesus Christ or in your mind for Jesus Christ and God's kingdom, just realize there will be some conflict. Now back to Luke 12, 54th verse. Then Jesus turned to the crowd and said, Now what he's going to say, now let me stop. I know some of you are reading on, just stop. What he's going to say will implicate unbelievers in their unbelief. That's what you got to hear when we read this. It's just like what, what, what Phil Robertson said. If you don't believe God exists, when you die, you're hoping He's not there. And then he said, we trust that He is. Now, who is that guy? Who's Phil Robertson? He's just some redneck uh-uh, duck caller. Was that a duck? <laughs> Steve Yearwood said. Who is he? He's a guy with a master's degree from Louisiana Tech University. He's a guy who told his wife, you know, we're going to move away from things and we're going to move back into nature. He's a guy who, if you listen to more than just a few of these things, he's a guy who believes in God, faith, and family. We got away from that. A lot of people say they believe in God and faith, and boy, their poor family, we just leave them alone. But let's, let's move away from Phil Robertson. Let's move to Blaze Pascal. Find out about him on the internet. Genius, mathematical genius. I think the 17 or 1800s. I'm not sure now. It's been some time since I looked. Blaise Pascal. When, when computers were invented, we called the language used because it dealt with, I guess, ones and zeros, but numbers. Pascal. Named after him. Genius. Blaise Pascal has the Pascal challenge. He says, I'm telling you, I'm a believer in Jesus. And he says, if... Jesus doesn't exist when I die. Then all I've wasted is this lifetime. Now I'm going to tell you something. I would correct that. I think if anybody becomes a follower of Jesus, they don't waste this lifetime. Your kids want to come around you. Your mate wants to come around you. Your neighbors like having you in the neighborhood. People like you. Because, see, when you live and love like Jesus, the only people who don't like you are the bullies in society. Because you'll stand up to bullies. But Blaise Pascal says, if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, if when I die, Jesus, it's not real, I've wasted a lifetime. You don't believe in Jesus? When you die, and He is real, you've wasted an eternity. That's a genius who thought that. You've probably heard that in many different ways. Came from the, the mind of a genius. Jesus is going to talk in the next few words to try to get unbelievers understand their unbelief so they'll move away from their unbelief and let this passion, this fire of God get in them. 
Now look what he says. He goes on in verse 54. Let me just do 54. Then Jesus turned to the crowd and said, When you see clouds beginning to form in the west, you say, Here comes a shower. And you are right. And when the south wind blows, you say, Today will be a scorcher. And it is. Now I want you to circle the next two words. Because it's very important to understand this. You fools. You fools. He goes on. You know how to interpret the weather signs of the earth and sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present times. In other words, they're seeing Jesus and they don't know how to interpret who He is and what He's doing. Now listen, folks. They didn't have radar. Weather radar. And they didn't have weather apps. They couldn't say, you know, we're going to plant the corn. They're an agricultural society. Jesus is talking to these people. That's how they live. He's not into the metropolitan area in Jerusalem yet. And he's saying, you know what you do? You can look, you can look up, and you can say, there's going to come a rain. Or you can look up and say, oh no, it's going to be so hot. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you got all this wisdom that you can look and you can, from what you see going on around you, you know, you don't have to look on TV. Okay? I got up at 6 o'clock this morning. I'm watching the weather channel before I get started. Is it going to be hot or cold? I thought it was going to rain all day, didn't you? No, some of you probably look at your weather app. It's supposed to be nice all day, 62 degrees. So I just roll up my sleeves so I don't get hot. But they couldn't do that. And so they would look and they would say, it's going to shower, it's going to be hot. So they knew what to do in living life. And Jesus says, but you don't. You don't even, you've got all that understanding about life on earth, but you don't understand what's going on right here in front of you. You look up to prepare for the future, but you never look to prepare for eternity. You never look to prepare for what's going to happen in eternity. In other words, you will say, oh boy, look at the sky, look at the sun. It's going to be a hot day today. And you put on your flip-flops and your shorts and your, your, your tank tops or whatever. I want to tell you, people will do that. But they won't even look. They won't even look at what God is doing and realize, uh-oh, hell's going to be very hot. And do what they should do to prepare. See, everyone's going to die. What are you doing to prepare? That's what Jesus is going to try to help them understand. Look at 57. I'd underline the entire verse, 57, because when he called them, you fools, this is what he's trying to tell them. Why can't you decide for yourself what is right? How come you need your dad to tell you or your mom to tell you to go to church? How come you need your husband and your wife to invite you to church? How come you need somebody else to say, you ought to get closer to God? How come you need a pastor to tell you? Jesus is trying to tell them. Why can't you decide for yourself what is right? That's why it's so important. Listen, the connection people live and love like Jesus. We don't argue the Bible. We don't argue theology. We just live it out. And people want to get around that kind of a person. Unless they're a bully. Jesus is saying, how come you, how come you don't look at what's happening in front of you? What's being said? What's occurring? You can figure out the weather. You can prepare for today and tomorrow. But how come you don't prepare for eternity? Look on your message map. Look at the next blank. Many refuse to think about long-range planning for an eternal future. Many of you put money away for your little baby for college, and you're not putting anything away 
in regards to the kingdom of God for your baby. And believe me, your baby can get a college degree and take a gun and take their life. Your baby can get a college degree and marry somebody that will treat them like dirt. Many refuse to think about long-range planning for an eternal future because they are consumed. They are consumed to cold water. They are consumed with short-term planning for an immediate future. Some look at the weather more than they look at their heart. And what would your heart say to you about your relationship with God? Is it just, well, I sit in church? Or will it say, you know, there's not much fire burning inside you? Remember, he started all this with, that's why he came for. See, he's confronting these people of unbelief. Look what he says in verse 58. When you are on the way, now look at this. Got to understand, these verses are in context of the passage. When you are on your way to court with your accuser, okay, try to settle the matter before you get there. Otherwise, your accuser may drop, I'm sorry, may drag you before the judge who will hand you over to the officer, who will throw you into prison. In other words, you're on your way to court, okay? You know you're guilty. Listen, it's very evident. You're going to get there. Judge is going to decide. He's going to give you over to the person who's going to take control of you, and they're going to put you in your judgment, okay? 59, and if that happens, you won't be free again until you've paid the very last penalty. Jesus is trying to get them to understand what they're doing in this life. He's saying, look, you know what you would do. Any sane person would do. Okay, you committed a crime against somebody. They filed a charge. You're going to have to go to court. Okay, you did the wrong. You blame them. You say all the reasons of why you did what you did. But listen, you hired the best counselor, lawyer that you could hire. And he tells you, I'm going to tell you what. You are guilty. Everybody knows you're guilty. When you get before the judge, you're guilty. And what they're going to do, they're going to make your life very unmeaningful. They're going to throw you in prison. You're not going to have any life after this decision is made. Do you understand what he's trying to say? Okay, you know that. Everybody else knows that. But on the way, the person you committed the crime against comes running up to you and says, Hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. You know this crime you did against me? See, now I get a little upset because I think he's going to try to rub it in my nose. He says, you know this crime you did? Everybody knows you're guilty. You know you're guilty. I know you're guilty. Oh, yeah, but you caused it. You did this, 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 okay? Everybody knows you're guilty. And when we get before the judge, the judge is going to listen. The judge is going to beat the gavel and say, you're guilty. He's going to put you in to, under somebody else's control, and they're going to give you your judgment, and you're going to be in, pro- in trouble until there is a payment made, until you can make this right. And now I'm pretty indignant toward this person. they just rubbing my foot, face in it. And they say, but I want to tell you something, Mike. I want to tell you, I got thinking about this. I got thinking about this, and I love you. And I, I, I don't want your life to be meaningless. And I got to thinking about this. I want us to reconcile. I want you not to have to worry about that judge anymore. I want you not to worry about your wrong anymore that you did. I want you to not worry about having a meaningless future. Now, what would any sane person say to that person? Even if I was indignant, and you know I'm the kind of person who holds on to ill feelings, what would any sane person say? 
Any sane person, and listen, some of us aren't sane sometimes in our life. Any sane person would say, let's reconcile. You're telling me, you're telling me that you're going to forgive all my wrongs? Let's reconcile. You're telling me, you're telling me I don't have to be responsible because I made the wrong decision in my past? Let's reconcile. Any sane person would say, you're telling me, you're telling me my future doesn't have to be meaningless because I'm going to tell you it's not going to be good if that judge makes a decision. Let's reconcile. That's what Jesus is telling them. When you're walking in life, any sane person would settle the case before judgment is given. That's what he's trying to bring out. He's trying to get people of unbelief to understand their unbelief. Don't forget these words of Jesus. Please, some of you, you're only here because it's Easter Sunday. And I'm glad you're here because it's Easter Sunday. I will not make any jokes about people who only come on Easter or Christmas. I'm glad to see you. But I want you to understand some of you are only here because some kind of obligation you feel on Easter Sunday toward God. But you have no fire and you have no relationship with God. You know that in your heart. And I'm going to tell you this. The people closest to you, they know that also in their heart. You have no relationship. You have no fire. You have no passion. You have no commitment. And God is trying to tell us through these words of Jesus that He knows your situation. Look on the screen. I want to take you through what God says is our situation. The book of Romans. Romans 3.23 says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. In other words, God is saying, everybody's guilty. You're all sinners. That's what God is saying. Look, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, he's saying in the 6th chapter and the 23rd verse. Now listen to me. Listen, I'm up here. He's saying this. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. You are all guilty of sin. Some of you are cool Joes. You just think, if I won't take any action, when a decision comes in court, I'm going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. It's like Phil Roberson said, some of you are just hoping God isn't there. You're hoping for your child's sake God isn't there. You're just hoping. And yet God is telling you, you are guilty of your sins and judgment is coming look at the next passage in romans paul was trying to help these people in rome understand what god has done for them but god showed his great love for us by sending christ to die for us when when we were guilty while we're sinners jesus didn't go to the cross because i'm good jesus went to the cross because i'm bad and any person who stand up in front of you as a follower of jesus say you know i'm gonna go to heaven because i'm a good joe They don't even understand the Gospels. They're probably not even saved. They're probably not even a Christian. Because every Christian knows, every follower of Jesus, every person understands what Jesus did knows. The only reason they have a relationship with God is because of what Jesus did, not what they did. Listen to me. Some of you are carrying guilt because some bully in your past is thrown on you that you're no good, you're an idiot, you're going to be a failure, you've got to be punished. Somebody's thrown something on you. And until you come to a place that God is saying, I love you. I love you. 
You are worth my son on the cross. You can stop letting that bully impact your life today, even though that bully might be dead or out of your life. You see, God showed his great love for you by sending Christ to die for you. Not because you're good, but because God sees you're guilty. See, he's he's pursuing you. Don't you realize that? This morning, I didn't choose this passage to come up on Easter Sunday. I've told you throughout this, this series, it's amazing how God in his time has a certain passage come up at a certain time. God knew you were going to be here. He's pursuing you like that friend would pursue you to reconcile. Now look at the next verse in Romans. Look what God said. So what do I do? Okay, Jesus died for me. What do I do? Everyone who calls, everyone, not some, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They're going to be declared not guilty. Look what he says. But how can they? Because he wants, Paul's writing to Christians why Christians got to be willing to share with their loved ones and their children and their friends when the opportunity's there. He says, but how can they call on Jesus to save them, on the Lord to save them unless they believe in him? You see, it's got to be an action of faith. The Bible says in the 10th chapter, 9th verse, that you believe in your heart and you make confession with your mouth. So he says, how can they call him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? What is, what is God saying to us? God is saying, I want you to understand, I know you've went a year, or I won you went, you've went a few months, and you've stopped thinking about your heart relationship with me and my kingdom. And God is saying, I love you, I'm pursuing you, and I want you to know I've got somebody here telling you that I love you and I'm pursuing you. I got someone here telling you what my son was telling those people back then. You're so wise with your job. You're so wise with life. You can predict where the ducks are going to fly and when they're not going to fly. You can predict when the deers will be up and run and when they're not going to be up and running. You can predict all this stuff. You can predict who's going to win the next basketball game. But you're not able to look. You refuse to look at the signs for eternity. And God says, I'm, per, I'm pursuing you. And I have Mike Davis talking to you about this. What would any sane person do that hears this from God? Any sane person is going to say, reconcile. You mean to tell me? You mean to tell me my sins can be forgiven? Let's reconcile. You mean to tell me that I'm not accountable for what I did when I was 14, 16, 34, 57, 38, whatever it is? Let's reconcile. You mean to tell me I don't have to look forward to a meaningless life in hell, but I can look forward, and you want to stay with us in Luke because Jesus is going to talk about this. I can look forward to a party with God. That's what Jesus calls it, a party with God. Let's reconcile. That's what any sane person would do. Only a person who refuses to see the truth would wait until they get to court and God's judgment is decided. Now Jesus says all this. Now look in the 13th chapter of the first verse. Now I want you to understand, when, when these books were written, when these words were written, there was no chapter, no verses. That's 300 years later after Jesus, basically. Chapters and verses were put so we could find our way through the Bible. This would have just been the next thought Jesus had after he said all that. He says in verse 1, about this time Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the people from Galilee? Jesus asked, 
Is that why they suffered? Now let me stop. You've got to hear this in context. In other words, word comes. Hey, did you all hear? News. See, if, if, if they had their computers, people in the crowd would say, Hey, look, I just got a text mail. These people were murdered by Pilate. Okay, Jesus says, Do you think they were murdered, that they suffered because they were bad people? See, that's what they thought back then. Bad things happen to you because you're a bad person. I'm going to tell you, bad things happen to you sometimes because you're around bad people. Bad things happen to you sometimes because of other things outside of your circumstances. And bad things happen to you sometimes because you make the wrong choice. Some of you young girls got so much promise, so much potential. And you know what? You let some guy just, and they'll treat you like dirt. They'll treat you like dirt, girls. But they'll just take advantage of you because they just want some of your body. Man, you ought to get rid of that, Joe. You find a guy that's going to live for you. But I'm going to tell you, when you say I do, it starts changing somewhat. Jesus is saying, he's saying, do you think bad things happen to these people? They were murdered because they're bad. Look what he says. Not at all. In other words, Jesus is trying to say this. Follow the context. Jesus is trying to say, people die. That's what he's trying to say. Not because they're bad. People die die that's what he's trying to say now look what he says after that and and i'd underline the next 14 words because if you read this you need to understand this in the context to interpret these verses he says and you start underlining you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to god somebody says newsflash pilots killed a bunch of people jesus says do you think those people died because they were murdered because they were bad and some people would say yep you know, somebody always has all the answers. Bullies always have all the answers. Jesus says, not so. People just die. So he says, listen, people die. You're going to die. And what does he tell them you better do? He says, you either going to repent or you're going to perish. That's what he says. People are going to die. You're going to die. So you're either going to repent or you're going to perish. And you know, Jesus does what he does. This is serious talk. Look what happens next in verse 4. And what about, Jesus throws this up. What about those 18 people that were on the news last week or last month? What about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Now look what he asked. Were they worse sinners in Jerusalem? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? Nope. In other words, you think it fell on them, an accident occurred, and they died. Was it because they're bad people? Nope. You see, people die. That's what he's saying. People die. And look what he says. He goes on in verse 5. And I tell you again, he's hitting this point home. I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, you either repent or you perish. He has hit this hard from the end of chapter 12 into chapter 13. I'm telling you, folks, if you're here today, you're going to die. And you're either going to repent or you're going to perish. And you can leave me. You can leave this out of your life. You can say, I don't want to hear it anymore. But I want you to understand the most loving person that ever lived who stepped out of all, crea- all eternity in a good experience and came to creation and experienced the pain and suffering and degradation is telling you I love you and I'm here to put something in you that will become a passion of fire and will transform your life and I've told you I've seen it transform families if one person would just trust Jesus and live in love like him as a follower and Jesus says if you don't I'm going to tell you if you don't repent you're going to perish because you will die now listen folks I want to describe repentance 
I've said this before. I use this illustration. Repentance is walking along in life and God gets your attention and you realize he's telling you the truth. And so you say, "Uh uh-oh, the word repentance in the Greek means to turn. I'm turning. I'm stopped going my way and I'm going God's way. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Let me break this down. Repentance is a change that takes place. It takes place in your mind. I'm going along and God says, you know, you're doing it wrong. If you're going to repent, you're going to say, uh-oh, God, I'm doing it wrong. That's what repentance begins in the mind. And then it touches the emotion, see? Repentance is saying, God, I'm doing it my way. Not your way. I'm wrong. And in the emotion, I feel sorry. God, I'm sorry that I'm doing it my way and not your way. Now listen to me. Repentance involves changing in the mind and it touches your emotions. I am sorry. I've seen people and they repent. I've seen some people just cry like babies. I've seen other people just laugh. And I've seen some people become very stoic. Now I want you to understand. Repentance happens in the mind. God, I'm going my way. It's the wrong way. It touches emotions. God, I'm sorry. I'm going my way. I don't want to go my way. It's the wrong way. And then it affects the action. God, I'm going to stop trying to live like it. I'm going to follow Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean you're perfect. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to touch on that. It means you make repentance. God sees this change that takes place in your life somewhere. And God says, when I see that, you're mine. And now judgment has been settled. Jesus said it this way. There's no condemnation for those who have faith in him. It's gone. It's been decided. That's why Jesus says, repent or perish. Repent or perish. He's going to say again, unless you repent, you will perish. He'll say that later. And that's what he's telling us to do. That's what he's telling you to do. Now look on your message map. Look at the next, the last blank. Oh, please hear this. Repentance is not just. The word is just. Repentance is not just something you do to become a follower of Jesus. Some of you have never heard it this way. Repentance is not just something you do to become a follower of Jesus. Repentance. Now look what it says. It is what you also do to grow as a follower of Jesus. See, some of you have repented and you become a follower of Jesus. You had that experience where you knew your way was wrong and God was right. In your mind you said that. And you had the emotion, oh man, I'm so ashamed. I'm sorry, God. And you have made the action change. God, I'm going to follow Jesus. But the problem is, you see... Temptation still comes to the Christian. One of the greatest verses in temptation was written to Christian people in 1 Corinthians 10th chapter 13th verse. Christians still are tempted. Repentance is what we do now on a regular basis to grow. Because sometimes I get off on the wrong road. Sometimes I'm not as kind to my wife as I ought to be. Sometimes I maybe didn't tell the truth like I should have told it. And God convicts me. You see, he's saying, you know, you're, you're going your way. I know, God, I'm your child. That's wrong. Oh, God, I'm so sorry for it. God doesn't throw guilt and shame. Listen. God doesn't, he throws throws conviction. God doesn't work with guilt and shame. Satan does that and bullies use that. Please hear that. And so I said, God, I'm sorry. And what I do now, look, I started to go off. I said, God, I'm going to follow Jesus. I repented. Repentance is what you do to grow. Some of you as mates, you got to repent because you see you're a follower of Jesus, but you stopped doing what God wanted you to do, and he's trying to tell you. Some of you as children, you need to repent. You're a Christian. You're a follower of God. You've just got caught up in some temptation that's led you to sin, and you need to hear God say, it's wrong. And you say, God, I know it's wrong, and I'm sorry, and I'm going to 
change my actions. Even if it's just for today, then you repent for tomorrow. Repentance is what Christians do to grow. It's ongoing in our lives. That's why some of you, some of you are saying, how come it didn't stick? Because you stopped repenting. How many times I have to say to my wife, I'm sorry every time that I need to repent. Every time. And when we repent, listen, when we repent walking this way and we receive Jesus, we decide to follow Jesus. When I'm walking my Christian life and I get caught up in some temptation, some sin, and I repent, I decide to follow Jesus. You see, repentance always brings you back. Not following Mike, not following the church, not following a bully, not following rule makers, following Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, you do the things Jesus wants you to do. How long? Until the next temptation that you don't have strength to overcome because you're not hanging around with people who have faced those kinds of struggles. You're not into God's Word. And you get off, and then you get back on. Follow Jesus. You see, people are repentant. Repentant repentant people follow Jesus. They do what Jesus says. That's what they do. Jesus told us never to forsake this. Jesus showed us by the example we ought to get together and do Bible study in small groups. But Jesus said this. Jesus said, every one of my followers ought to be baptized. There's people today that say, Jesus is the Lord, and they've never been baptized. They don't, they don't read the Bible. That's one of two things Jesus said we should never stop doing. If you become a follower, you are to be baptized. Until he comes back. The other thing he said, listen, if you are a follower of mine, you are to remember what I've done for you. And here's what I'm going to give you to remind you. I'm going to give you what we call the Lord's Supper. The Last Supper in the Bible. We call it face down here. Some people call it communion. Jesus says, from this point on, now that you're a follower of mine, I want you on a regular basis, when you're gathering, takes the element of the bread and juice, I want you to take it. I'm going to tell you, in most churches, the majority of the people do not take communion or Eucharist or, or, or Lord's Supper anymore. No, they don't take it anymore. And yet Jesus said to do it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then that means you decide to do what he says. And this morning, we're going to take the elements of face down. If you're wondering why we call it face down later after we're done, read it. I've wrote an article in the message map. Just we fall face down before Jesus. You know what the Bible says in the book of Matthew? It says when the ladies went there to the tomb and the angel came and moved the stone, and the angel said, look inside, he's not here. And he wasn't there. And the ladies, the angel says, you need to, uh, or the ladies started to leave because they were sad. And they saw Jesus. And it says, man, they fell down at his face, at his feet, and just hugged him. And he says, now, ladies, come on, get up. You go talk to my followers. Tell them I'm going to meet them over in the Sea of Galilee. I love that. I'm not going to meet them at the temple in Jerusalem. <laughs> I'm going to meet them up there where people say you can't do much with the outcasts. They fell down at His feet. And when you take this morning, we're going to offer the bread and the juice. And you know why we do it? It's not just an action. It's for you. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, because that's all who should take it. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's to take that bread and that juice. And when you take it, say, Jesus, I know what you did for me. And if you need to repent, you repent. And you get back on the road of following Him as you eat it. It's remember what He's done for you. And every church ought to be emphasizing that. On their schedule. Bullies always say, no, everybody's got to do it according to my schedule. 
on the schedule of their church. I want those who are going to serve face down to come forward. If you would, take your places. Look, we're going to have three locations where there's going to be two people. One's going to be holding a loaf of bread. The other's going to be holding a goblet. If you want to take face down, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I don't care if you take it, but this is really only for followers of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus and you don't think you ought to take it because maybe you're not regular with us, that's okay. Then don't take it. See, nobody's going to judge you. If somebody sits down beside you and judge you, talk to me, okay? I better yet kick them in the bottom, okay? No, don't do that. Listen, if God is speaking to you and you are a follower of Jesus, and you come and you just pull off a piece of that bread and you dip it in the juice, and then you either eat it up here or you take it back to your seat. And when you do, you just evaluate your life, what He has done for you. Do you need to repent? And you do your repentance and get back on that road. Repentant people decide to follow Jesus. I invite you today to be a part of Face Down. You come when you're ready. You come now.